Welcome to the Trinity Church Aberdeen podcast, where you can listen to our most recent sermons. To find out more about who we are and what we believe, visit trinityaberdeen.org.uk. Well, let's turn to that passage again, Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 to 7. And if you're using one of the church Bibles, page 573, or if you're using one of the large print ones, page 680. Um, And actually, unless you've got really quick fingers, if you're using your mobile phone, it might not be a bad idea today to have a church Bible nearby, uh, at least if you want to look up the some 20 different references that may or may not appear in the course of this uh, message. So, uh, we've come for the third time to read this passage. In a couple of weeks' time, we should all have memorized it without effort but there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light, Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace." Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. There was a tradition in antiquity, and it's fairly evident in this passage, uh, a tradition that actually has lasted into the present day, um, and you may have seen some discussion of this earlier on in the year around the time of the coronation. Uh, Some people were asking the question, what will the king's name be? And if that seems a strange question to you, uh, then it's of value to know that since the days of uh, antiquity, 
Often, monarchs, when they've ascended the throne, have taken throne names rather than use their own name. And there was some discussion in the small print in the newspapers, perhaps because the two predecessors with the name Charles had not made a particular success of monarchy. The first literally lost his head, and the second lost his crown, that perhaps Charles would take another name as the throne name. As for those of us who are of my generation may remember, his grandfather did. We know him as King George V, but George was one of those names away down the line of those people who have multiple names, and his real name was Albert, and he was apparently known in the family as Bertie, in which case he would have become King Bertie I, but instead he chose to be known as King George V. And it's clear, isn't it, as we've seen, that the promise, the prophecy that Isaiah has given in chapter 7, that the coming Messiah will be Emmanuel, God with us. And as we discover in the first chapter of the New Testament, this Emmanuel's own name, his given name, is to be Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Isaiah is giving to him his throne name. And the whole atmosphere of this passage, as we've seen, is that he is going to ascend, as uh, verse 7 tells us, he's going to ascend in the line of David, but unlike David, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Now, it's just possible this throne name uh, should read, a wonderful counselor is the mighty God, and an everlasting Father is the Prince of Peace, that is to say, two parts to it, uh, but not just because there are four Sundays in Advent, uh, but for other reasons. Uh, we've taken the view in this series that there are actually four throne names, that for the people who are living in darkness, God is going to give them a wonderful counselor. And of course, as we remember from the fourth chapter of the Gospel of Matthew. The opening words of this chapter are seen as looking forward to the incarnation and the ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ. So, we have a wonderful counselor if we are the people of God, or to put it very simply, we've got somebody to turn to no matter how alone or how lonely we may be, the people of God have someone to turn to. But now this second part of Jesus' throne name is that He is a mighty God, wonderful counselor, mighty God. And I want to try and compress much that could be said about this into two very simple questions. The first is, what is the meaning of this name? And the second is, what is the significance of this name? Now, at first glance, the answer to the first question, what is the meaning of this name, seems quite obvious. 
but then I wouldn't be raising it if it was quite obvious, would I? What I mean is that we're familiar with the, the rhythm of these words, mighty God, or to apparently turn it the other way around, God Almighty. And because God Almighty is a, a frequent expression in the Bible, we, we might think that all Isaiah is doing here is, is simply reversing uh, the words for the sake of interest or variety. And if that were the case, then this sermon might well be about the irresistible power of the Lord Jesus Christ as God Almighty, as Emmanuel. And if that were the case, it might be a better sermon than the one you're listening to, and it might do you more good for all I know, but it's not the meaning of this text, because the language Isaiah uses here is not the language of Almighty God, El Shaddai, but the mighty God, the God who is mighty, El Gibor. And that word, as the, as the first hearers of Isaiah's pronouncement of the coming of this Savior, as it hit their ears, just as we use words that, that come to us with atmospheres, they're not just single words, but they, they come to us out of, the, out of the context in which we are familiar with hearing them, and that's just how words work. The context in which the people in Isaiah's day would be familiar with this description, mighty, was not the context of God being almighty, but the context of the warriors of the people. So, this is, this is the language that is used, for example, in Chronicles, uh, when the chronicler gives these long lists of David's mighty men. And in the case of those who are really the mighty men, and there's a small number of them, and their names are listed, there's the three, and there's the thirty who don't get promoted to the three. What characterizes them is their valor in battle, is the fact that they are warriors, is the fact that they are actually, especially the three, national heroes. And actually, we're, we're familiar with the, probably the most famous person about whom this a word is used, although it's, it's not translated this way, perhaps unfortunately, even in our wonderful English Standard Version. The person we are most familiar with being described in this way is, answers on a postcard, Goliath. So, when we're told that David slew Goliath, the champion of the Philistines, this is the word that's used. So, this is not just the language of naked power. This is the language of heroism, of triumph, of conflict, of battle, of victory. 
And of course, what is being underlined in 1 Samuel 17 is that this giant whom no one has defeated, in terror of whom the whole of Israel stood or even fled, this man has been defeated by David with his sling and with his stones, and he carries his head away because he has defeated, he has vanquished the champion of the Philistines. And so, the people begin to sing their songs that make uh, King Saul jealous. But now David, and not Saul, is the champion. So, this is language not just of naked power. This is language of valor, of heroism, of victory in battle and in conflict. And you can see how appropriate that is to this passage. This whole passage begins with a story of battle and conflict and defeat and victory. So, what is being said here is that if the Lord Jesus is a wonderful counselor to us when we are in the darkness, then Jesus is also a powerful conqueror for us in our weakness. And it's this atmosphere, I think, that helps us to answer our second question, which will take a little longer. If that's the meaning of this name, what is the significance of this name? What does it mean that we have a champion in the battle? And it's interesting, the answer to that question actually connects this passage to the whole story of the Bible thus far, and in fact to the whole story of the Bible. The whole story of the Bible is about how the promise, actually the threat to the serpent in Genesis 3.15, is going to be fulfilled. That's the whole story of the Bible. Um, I love one of the statements that one of the uh, British-English-American philosophers, Alfred North Whitehead, made when he said, you know, the whole story of philosophy is really just a series of footnotes to the work of Plato. And I think it's helpful for us to understand the whole story of the Bible is a series of footnotes explaining to us how it is that this promise in Genesis 3.15 will be worked out, that there will be from that initial point a perpetual conflict between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent until there comes one seed of the woman who will engage in personal conflict not just with the seed of the serpent, but with the serpent himself, with the evil one, with Satan who stands behind the serpent. And even while that seed's heel will be crushed, he will crush the head of the serpent. And I guess especially because it's right there at the beginning of the Bible, it's it's amazing how many books there are about the Bible that seem to miss this point, that everything that follows is somehow or another connected to this first promise of the coming of the Messiah. And what's so fascinating in the light of this passage is the first promise of the coming of the Messiah 
is not that He will bring forgiveness of sins, which He will do, but as He brings forgiveness of sins, which is not in fact promised in Genesis 3.15, He will crush the head of the serpent. He will engage in conflict. And friends, if we, if we don't grasp that, then there is a sense in which we've actually been reading the Bible like people who, who, who have missed the fact there is actually a plot in this book, and that everything, of course, like plots in books, often it's only when you close the last page that you understand what the plot has really all been about, and there's a sense in which that's true in the Bible itself, in the book of Revelation. But this is a book, this is a story, and where it's going is the climaxes of this conflict, first in the first coming of Christ, and then in the second coming of Christ. And that's where these words connect to the whole Bible story. He is a valiant warrior, because whatever else Isaiah might not understand about the coming of Christ, what he realizes, and as I say, it's obvious in this passage, what he realizes is that he has got to win a victory that somehow or another will be reminiscent of what happened in the day of Midian's defeat. And Isaiah's not the only prophet, is he? Um, those of us who may at one time have been exclusive unaccompanied psalm singers or even accompanied psalm singers, and remember St. George's Edinburgh and the anthemic nature of singing, ye gates lift up your heads on high, ye doors that last for a, be lifted up that so the King of glory enter may. But who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong, mighty in battle. It's a picture of the Messiah returning from the battle. That's what's in view. He is ascending, as it were, back to the throne room from which He came in triumph and glory. And similarly in the great vision of Daniel in Daniel chapter 7, it's in the context of of these strange and terrible beasts that represent kingdoms of this world being overthrown, that Daniel sees the vision of the Son of Man going to the Ancient of Days. It's not actually a picture in the first instance of the return of Christ, I don't think. I think it's a picture of the re first return of Christ from the conflict of the cross and the victory of the resurrection, and then we're told He shares the spoils with the saints of the Most High. And this is just another, this is just another branch, as it were, of the promise of a conqueror, the promise of a defender, the promise of a Savior in the sense that in Jesus Christ there is someone who will defend us from our enemies, whatever kind of enemies they may be, and lead us ultimately, as the Scriptures say, in His glorious triumph. And all of that may seem to be far removed from the Christmas story, except 
if you were to get the apostle John in a corner and say to him, John, what was the reason for the incarnation? What was the reason for the incarnation? Why did the Son of God come? Well, you remember his answer in 1 John chapter 3. The reason, the reason the Son of God came was to destroy the works of the devil. Uh, We've had songs running through this series. Um, A couple of songs running through my mind, but any of you remember that great song from, I think it was from the 60s? Excuse if you're not a 60s kind of person. We're on the eve of destruction. We're on the eve of destruction. That's what the nativity is. It's the eve, the beginning of the destruction of the works of the devil. And that's why there's a special significance in this name that's given to Jesus, that he's, he's a fighter. He is a warrior. He is a conqueror. He is a hero. Because if you think your way through the Gospels, one of the, one of the really obvious things when, when you see it is that there are dots that run through the Gospels that when you join them, they're fulfilling this prophecy. When He was born, what, what do we discover outside of the family, outside of the shepherds, outside of the wise men, outside of, of, the, of the wider family? What do we discover is the first thing that happens to the Lord Jesus? Well, it's that King Herod seeks to destroy Him. You don't think that's accidental, do you? And then what's the first thing that happens after Jesus comes onto the stage of history as a public figure is identified by God's voice and the Spirit's coming in the form of a dove as the Messiah, as this Messiah? Well, the Spirit leads him out into the desert in order to fight against Satan. And you see what he's doing. Um, The message of the temptations, incidentally, is not in the first instance that they teach us how to deal with temptation. The message of the temptation narratives in the first instance is to tell us that Jesus marched into enemy-occupied territory, into the desert that Satan had created, as it were, out of the Garden of Eden in order to build a bridgehead of victory. And then what happens, this is so interesting, what happens in, in Mark's gospel when he returns and he goes and into the, the synagogue in Capernaum, and Mark tells us what I've always found is a totally fascinating little detail. He tells us there was a man in the synagogue who started shouting out. I don't think that happened very often in the synagogue. I mean, I've been a minister, I guess, somewhere over 50 years, and I've had not, not many occasions, I've had some, when people have started shouting out. 
And Mark tells us he was demon-possessed. And you think, how is it in all likelihood that man was there every Sabbath? And nothing happened. But when Jesus appeared, and you remember what he said? Remember what the demon said? Have you come to torment and destroy us before the time? And the same in the, in the story of the, of the Gadarene demoniacs. The demons cry out, have you come to destroy us? Well, of course, that's exactly what he had come to do. He'd come to win a victory over them, to destroy the powers of darkness that were enslaving these men. And then the, the tactics of, of the serpent change, don't they? And no longer does he in the first instance use these marginalized people, as it were. But uh, Simon Peter, don't go to the cross where the victory is going to be won. Get thee behind me, Satan. And then when, when Peter is recovered, well, the next stage is, is Judas, isn't it? We're told how Satan himself, whatever this means, Satan himself entered into him. And when he came with the soldiers to arrest the Lord Jesus and identified him with a kiss, Jesus said this very striking thing. He said, this is your hour and the hour of the power of darkness. And you see the picture? The picture is that midway through Jesus' ministry, the evil one is trying to stop him going to the cross. By the end of Jesus' ministry, the evil one is trying to drive Jesus to the cross according to His will rather than according to Jesus' will. And it's this story, the story of Genesis 3.15, being worked out right in the middle of Jesus' ministry, conflict, battle, all kinds of impressive forces arrayed against the Lord Jesus. Until, as Paul says on the cross, bearing the burden of our sin and guilt, our transgression of the law, the Lord Jesus removed the evil one's strongest instrument to keep us in captivity, namely the guilt and bondage of our sin. And Paul says on the cross, he made a, a public display and triumphed over him. John Calvin has a lovely little expression uh, in connection with that verse in Colossians 2, 14 and 15, where he says, Jesus turned the Roman gibbet into a triumphal chariot. And that's what Isaiah is looking forward to. This climactic conquest that the Lord Jesus will accomplish. So, how does that affect us? Well, it affects us in this way, that as Christian believers who know that Jesus is the mighty God, the, the warrior Savior, we live in the light of His victory, 
and looking forward to its consummation when He returns in majesty and glory, because we realize, as the Bible teaches us in a variety of different ways, we live between those two dates, the date of His first coming, the date of His second coming. Perhaps the most vivid picture of this is in the book of Revelation, isn't it? which can be a little confusing until you realize it actually is a picture book, and if you see the pictures, you get the message. And in chapter 12, we've got this dramatic presentation of the serpent who has now grown into a dragon, and he's crouching, as it were, in front of Mary as she's about to give birth, as as, as it were, the last woman in the long line of women God has used among Israel, and now this is the woman from whom the Messiah is going to be born. And He's there to destroy the Messiah right from His birth, and He seeks to do that. But uh, the child is caught up into heaven. It's, we're fast-forwarded he's safe, he's victorious. But then as John, as it were, sees into that, that big picture, and then in the second half of uh, Revelation 12, he sees the details of that big picture. You remember what happens? Um, that the serpent seeks to engulf the woman, and he seeks to engulf the offspring of the woman, the seed of the woman, but they are protected by the Lord Jesus. And that's, that's the outworking of this message that Isaiah sees. I think perhaps the, mo the most striking illustration of where we live in terms of the teaching of the New Testament, is found in the letter to the Ephesians. Remember how Paul at the beginning of Ephesians says, what has happened to you in becoming a Christian? He says, you've, you have been chosen in Christ, and you have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And he goes on to describe the blessings that we have, redemption and adoption and justification, transformation, we live in the light of Christ's victory. Then if you fast forward to the end, he begins to talk about everyday life, about our ordinary relationships with one another, husbands and wives, parents and children, masters and servants, where, where all of Paul's contemporaries lived. And he says, you need to know that as those who have been caught up into these heavenly blessings in the heavenly places, those heavenly places are a sphere in which the battle still goes on. And so he says, we wrestle not, Ephesians 6, 10 to 12, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and dark forces in these heavenly places. And so, the marvelous message, the marvelous comfort of this prophecy of Isaiah is that as we live in the light of Christ's conquest and look forward to the day that Isaiah goes on 
to describe when He will establish His kingdom with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. Until that day dawns, brothers and sisters, we are still in the battle, and the battle uh, for all of us is challenging. And for some of us at certain times, almost overwhelming, and we wonder if we are going to make it. And you know, friends, the older you get, it does not get any easier. The older you get, and the more you see the array of sadness and tragedy, the more you realize you're in a fight right to the very end. And you need a champion. You need one who will be your shield and defender. You not only need someone to whom you can go and say, Jesus, I'm on my own. I don't know where to turn. I don't know what to do, and I don't know how to pray. Be with me and counsel me that you're also able to go to him and say, Jesus, I am a frail clay pot, easily broken. The forces ranged against me seem so strong. Be my mighty God. Be my defender. Be my hero. You did heroic things. Do them for me. When you get to confessing just how old you are, um, I think it's, it's maybe not so inappropriate to say, I've, I've known a number of really great men. I mean really, really great men. But I've known only one man whom I could describe as a national hero. And he was a member of the congregation I served in the United States. He was awarded the Medal of Honor, which is the highest military honor that can be given to anyone in the United States, and few are given it. And the citation for his honor, I knew him only when he was an elderly man, the citation for his honor was like a movie script the courage, the heroism he had shown to save the lives of some of his comrades was, was unspeakably great. But I mention him for this reason, that in between the morning services in our church, I used to go back to my office to get ready for the second service, and at a fixed time every Sunday I would get up like clockwork, go over to my window, which looked out onto parking spaces, and I would see this national hero drive up and take one of the handicapped spaces, get out of the car, go to the other side, open the door, and so gently, so lovingly, so sweetly help his handicapped wife out of the car and into the church. And he didn't know I did it, and I never told him. Nobody knew I did it, but I always did it 
for one simple reason. Because it reminded me of the kind of hero Jesus is. A few weeks ago, David was speaking about this from Isaiah 42, that he doesn't break the bruised reed. He doesn't snuff out the dimly burning wick. And from Matthew 11, that when he breaks the yoke of the oppressor, then he places his own yoke upon us. But when he does it, his yoke is easy and his burden is light because he is meek and lowly in heart. And in him, in the midst of the battle, we find rest for our souls. That's what Paul says at the end of Romans 8, isn't it? It's not by avoiding persecution and distress and peril and famine and nakedness and sword. It's not, it's not by avoiding these things that we discover that Jesus is a great hero and a conqueror. It's in these very things, Jesus, the great hero conqueror, enables us also to be conquerors and to know that nothing will ever be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. So, He is a wonderful counselor for us, isn't He, when we're in darkness. And He's a great hero, warrior, protector, defender, deliverer for us whenever we are in trouble. And He's the only one. You know that, don't you? You know that you cannot ultimately put your trust in any other or in yourself. But Isaiah is saying to us, you can put your trust in Him. So, whether for the first time or the thousandth time, let's do that together. Lord Jesus, we thank You for the marvel of Your coming. We thank You that You came so fragile so small, so young. Thank You that You came as an embryonic size in the womb of Mary. And thank You that from the beginning of Your life right to the end, until You cried out in triumph that You had finished it, You had finished the work Your Father gave You to do. We thank You that You rose again in triumph and that You promised never to leave us and never to forsake us, and that You're the same today as You were yesterday, and that You will be forever. And while we long for the day when we will be delivered from all oppression, all tragedy, all sorrow, when every tear will be wiped away from our eyes, Lord Jesus, we pray that You would be our Savior hero, that we will love You with all our hearts, trust You with all our lives. And we do this now. We believe in You, and we pray that You would receive us. We ask this in Your name. Amen.